Jesus. Amen. It was written by an American music teacher named Catherine Davis, and she wrote it way back in 1940, almost 80 years ago. It was recorded for the very first time in 1951 by a nondescript uh, group that their name escapes me right now. And it was originally actually known as Carol of the Drum. And it has become a beloved Christmas carol over the last 70 or 80 years. And you know this one. You especially know because it won't leave your brain once you hear that rhythmic line at the end of everything. Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. And it just kind of resonates in your brain. Um, in the lyrics, a poor boy recounts how he was summoned by the Magi, the wise men, to journey with them to visit the Christ child in Bethlehem. And being poor, he had no gift for the infant, but this little drummer boy played his drum with the approval of Jesus' mother Mary. The lyrics say, I played my best for him. And then, of course, the end of the song, then he smiled at me, me and my drum. Rankin Bass made The Little Drummer Boy into a children's Christmas TV special in 1968, giving that little drummer boy a Jewish name, Aaron, and giving him some animal friends who accompanied him to Bethlehem. And of course, literally hundreds of artists have recorded this song over the last eight decades, including uh, this a cappella version by a group named Pentatonix in 2013. Just so you can get that pa-rumpa-pum-pum in your brain one more time before you head to the mall tomorrow. Take a listen. In case you think we have totally gone off the rails for Christmas 2019, I am aware that the little drummer boy is one of those totally fictional Christmas characters. 
who has been added into the beautiful story over the years and actually has now become one of our holiday traditions, especially in song. You might not have noticed this because normal people don't think about the things that pastors think about during the run of a week. The word drum doesn't even appear in the Bible, at least not in the English versions. But drums were actually used in the earliest forms of worship. If I could say it this way, I was thinking about this this week, we actually had rhythm in worship before we had melody in worship. Ancient worship involved the drum before it involved any other instrument. The word in Hebrew is tofe, but it's translated into the English Bible. It is there, we just don't recognize it because in the English Bible, it's translated as tabret or timbrel. And when we read tabret or timbrel, we mistakenly think tambourine. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with tambourines being a pastor because it's uh, not so much anymore, thank God. Um, But it used to be that people would show up with tambourines to play. It it amazed me that the Lord always seemed to uh, anoint these people with the gift of tambourine playing who had no sense of rhythm whatsoever. And even more so, no sense of decorum. They would play them at the worst and most inopportune times. And if that's you, please forgive me. Merry Christmas. (laughs) But the tambourine really isn't in the Bible because, uh, at least not in the Old Testament, because that instrument with the little jingle things on it didn't come into being until Roman times. So when you read tabret and timbrel, which are Old Testament words, that's not anything with jingly things on it. It's just a a drum. Actually, it was called a frame drum, and it had an animal skin stretched across it. And and so it it was a fairly large thing, between one and two feet in diameter. And by the way, um, the drum in the Old Testament was most often played by women, um, such as Moses' sister Miriam, who led the children of Israel in this big victory celebration when Israel was delivered from their slave master Egypt and they crossed through the Red Sea. And on the other side, the Bible says that we've got all these, uh, you know, pictures in our mind of Miriam with a tambourine. She didn't. She had a drum and they were singing and dancing. And men did get in on the act sometimes, especially the person I want to talk to you about this morning. He was the real little drummer boy. He grew up worshiping God through music, and we picture him with a harp, and that's true, and that's biblical, but he also worshiped God on a drum, and he ended up becoming the king of Israel, and his name is David, and he actually ended up becoming an ancestor of the one we celebrate today and through this week and at this time of the year, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 6 it came to pass when David was returned from a great military victory the slaughter of the Philistines that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets there's the drums um, with tabrets, with joy, with instruments of music and the women answered one another as they played they're doing this rhythmic chant with the drums And King Saul doesn't like this song very much, or at least not this verse. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He was the original drummer boy because he was celebrated with the drums. But he also played the drum. 
This is when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem after years of it being in enemy hands. This was really his first act as king of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 6, David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and psalteries and on timbrels. There's that word. It's a drum and on cornets and on cymbals. And so this David, he was the original. He's the real little drummer boy who grew up uh, herding sheep, learning to sing and play and keep time and play beautiful notes on the harp and beat that drum and sing to God. And because David was a lifelong worshiper, this little drummer boy was often anointed to speak prophetically, powerfully anointed by God. I just want to give you one example right now uh, as kind of an uh, an evidence of this, how powerful King David, who, who was not a prophet, but God would anoint him to speak prophetically. Look at this. This is Psalm 22. In verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That You recognize that. David's speaking that a thousand years before the phrase you recognize will be spoken. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Verse 7, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, and they say, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him come and deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And that's exactly what they said when the man Jesus hung on the cross. Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. I'm so thirsty. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Watch. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and they cast lots upon my vesture. David wrote that a thousand years before Jesus went to the cross. And when David says prophetically, they pierced my hands and my feet, that kind of execution did not exist and would not for another millennia until the Romans took power. And yet David was so powerfully anointed that he spoke Psalm 22 looking into the future. And now I want to take you to our text for today. This is at the end of his life. And now the little drummer boy has become an old man. His boyhood is far behind him. And a much older drummer boy begins to look back a much older worshiper begins to recount some of the most important events of his life, literally laying on his deathbed. And under inspiration of the Spirit of God, again, this little drummer boy who grew up to be the king of Israel, he speaks under the anointing. 2 Samuel 23. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, The man who was raised up on high, he came from nothing and became a king, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and here's how he was known all his life, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Here's what he said. I'm going to spare you the time this morning in this sermon, but let me just summarize chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. 
David begins to look back over his life and he begins to appreciate, he begins to reminisce all the wonderful things God has done, but especially he expresses deep affection and appreciation for his mighty men. These are the men who stood with him when King Saul, before he was a king, when he was just a ragtag leader of a bunch of ruffians, really, they stood with him when King Saul and all of his highly trained troops were seeking David to try to kill him. These are the men who were loyal. These are the men who protected David and ran from Saul with David and fought for David and hid David in the desert trying to protect him from a deranged king who was so insanely jealous of the little drummer boy. They later became high-ranking soldiers in David's army when he became king. And as David reminisces, you could read it for yourself in 2 Samuel 23, as his mind goes back, three of the mighty men stand out especially in his mind. First of all, there's Adino. He killed 800 men with a spear, a single spear in one battle. And David remembers like it was yesterday. Then there's Eleazar who stood his ground against the Philistines when all the rest of the army in that battle, they got scared and they fled, but he wouldn't flee. He, he stood his ground until his hand clave to his sword. Literally his hand, the muscles in his hand froze in position. They would have to pry Eleazar's hand from his weapon after that battle. And David remembers, it's so vivid on his deathbed, he can see it all. And then there's Shama. And Shama, he was a unique guy. He came from not very high standing in society, just like David. And Shama, he didn't have much, but he had this. He had a field of lentils. He had one little piece of property that he owned. Not much, couldn't afford much on a soldier's wage, especially a soldier that's not in the king's army. He was just following David. And Shama stood his ground to defend a little field of lentils. And basically his spirit was, you might not think this is much, but this is mine. And I'm going to keep what is mine. I'm going to keep what God gave to my family. Now, as David's reminiscing and, 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 and his mind is wandering back through his life and he's an elderly man laying on his deathbed, literally not far from death. As his mind goes back, he remembers his mighty men and he remembers those three. But there's one event that ties those three soldiers together in David's head. One event where those three mighty men, his favored among all of the mighty men, there's one event that ties them together. And it's the time that he remembers so vividly, in, in, in brilliant detail, at the closing hours of his life, he remembers like it just had happened. It's the time that the three of those men who loved David more than a brother, more than a son, more than a friend, they, they loved David like they loved their self. They, they would do anything for him. And he remembers the time that those three men defied death to bring David a drink of water. So insignificant it would seem. But he remembers it on his deathbed. 2 Samuel 23, verse 15. David longed. He's now, his mind's gone back to this battle that he was in. David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me a drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. 
And those three mighty men, they fought their way all through the host of the Philistines and they got to that well that was under siege and they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem by the gate and they took it and then they fought their way all the way back through enemy lines and brought it to David. And when David saw how much those three men, his friends, loved him, he could not drink the water that he was so thirsty for. He said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. This water's like the blood of these men that went in jeopardy of their lives. It's sacred to me. It's holy to me. It's so valuable. I, I couldn't disgrace this water by just drinking it to quench my thirst. The Bible says he wouldn't drink it. He poured it out on the ground in honor of the Lord and in honor of his friends. And then the scribe who's sitting by David's deathbed writing all this down says, these things did these three mighty men. Now you know this. That little drummer boy, of course, he grew up in the little town of Bethlehem. And so he was very, very familiar with the town well. His parents got their well, water there. His grandparents drank from that well, all of his ancestors. And David, as a young boy, a little boy that grew up playing the drum and playing the harp and worshiping God and tending sheep, he himself had made the trip to that well so many times just to fill up a bucket of clear, cold water. He'd lost count. Now, many years later, the country was under siege at war with the Philistines and on this particular day that David remembers to his dying day, on this particular day, the Philistines have conquered the hometown of David, the little tiny town of Bethlehem. And from a fortified camp, David and his mighty men can see the destruction. They can see the walls broken down and broken through and they can see homes lying in ruin. Maybe David's boyhood home totally destroyed. He can see his childhood memories going up in flames before his eyes. And the well of Bethlehem, the most important meeting point and the most important life sustainer of that whole town, it's been captured by the enemy. And on that day in battle, David, the original drummer boy, the real drummer boy, he, he just utters what's in his head. He doesn't even parse the words. He doesn't even think about it. It just kind of comes out. Have you ever said something that you weren't even trying to say or thinking about saying? It just kind of slipped out. Well, that's what happened to David that day. He's so thirsty and the enemy has won so much and destroyed so much and he's so tired and he's in such pain and he's got wounds and there's blood and his men are suffering and on that day before he even thinks about it, it just escapes David's lips. He says, Man, I wish somebody would get me a drink from that well. Now David's had drinks of water from hundreds of wells in his lifetime all over the country. But in that moment, in that battle, only one type of water from one type of well would do. And that was water from the well of Bethlehem. And David didn't just get thirsty on that day. David stayed thirsty. But he wasn't thirsty for natural water nearly so much as he was thirsty for water that came from God. If you read his writings, you will read a man that had this unquenchable thirst 
for the presence of God. Look at this, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Next verse. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. God leads me beside still water. It's always water with David. Psalm 42. As the deer pants after the water brooks, that's how my soul pants after you, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I just need a drink of the water of God's presence. Can I stop the sermon for a moment and tell you God is still looking for people today that are thirsty for his presence, that won't be satisfied with everything else, but in the middle of all the hustle and bustle and the busyness and the commitments and the time pressures, every once in a while, it just escapes their mouth before they even think about it. I gotta get into the presence of God. I got to go pray. I need to worship for a little while. I'm thirsty for something that the world won't give. God still loves that kind of worshiper. Psalm 63, David wrote this when he was in the wilderness of Judah being chased by Saul. Here's what he wrote. This is his diary. Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longs for you. He looks around. All he can see is desert in every, destruct, in every direction. But he said, my soul is as thirsty as this desert. My flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And here's David's thirst that never could get quenched enough for him to stop. It sustained him all his life from his birth to his deathbed. He was always thirsty for the presence of God. He said, I just want to see your power and your glory like I've seen you in the sanctuary. As we conclude 2019 and as we enter into 2020 in just a couple of weeks, let me tell you something. I am thirsty to see the power and the glory of God. I've seen him move in the sanctuary. I've seen him be faithful to me and move in my life, but I have never lost my thirst for the presence of God. I have never lost my hunger for a move of God. There is something that no amount of church services will do. It has to be a church service where the presence of God visits his people. There's something that no amount of preaching will do. It has to be a sermon where somebody just gets it and reaches out and thirsts after God. There's something that no amount of singing will accomplish unless it's singing that makes us so thirsty for God that we just say, I've got to see your power and your glory. I've got a history. I've got a pedigree. I've seen your glory in the sanctuary, but that's not enough. I'm still thirsty. I'm more thirsty today than I've ever been. And I wish somebody would let your thirst out through your voice via your praise and just lift it up to God. There is something that nothing else satisfies except the living, moving, manifest presence of God. Oh. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. Because his three mighty men have such love and deep respect for their leader. All David had to do on that day is just breathe the thought, just utter the words. He didn't have to command. He didn't have to hint or shame or guilt or nag. All he had to do was utter the thought. And they immediately, 
they sprang into action. Without even letting David know about it, those three mighty men rushed from the camp on a fool's errand by anybody's stretch of the imagination. And they broke through the defenses of the Philistines. And they got to that well and as two probably stood guard, the third let down a bucket and got some of that cool, clear water from the well of Bethlehem and then all three of them headed back wielding their weapon and their bravery and sacrifice was so precious to David that he counted that water as blood, poured it out as an offering to the Lord. And at the end of his life, on his deathbed, when he could remember anything, he could remember Goliath, he could remember the triumphs of his battles, but at the end of his life, that one event, when his three mighty men united and brought him a drink from the well of Bethlehem, that is foremost in his mind because this little drummer boy never lost his thirst for God when he grew up. This little drummer boy never lost that ability to just launch himself into the presence of God at any moment. Whether he was tending sheep, whether he was fighting off a wild animal, whether he was rejoicing that the Lord had given him victory over a giant, or whether he was thanking God that God had put him on the throne of his nation. Whatever was going on in David's life, this little drummer boy never ever lost the ability to just say, oh God, you are my God. Will I seek you? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He never lost his thirst. And David probably didn't realize on that day, in that battle, looking at that well in his hometown, he probably never realized that on that day he was speaking and acting prophetically. He couldn't have known. They came after he was in the grave. He couldn't have known that the prophets who would later minister to Israel, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the minor prophets, he couldn't have known that those men who would prophesy to Israel years later, they would speak of the visitation of God as a river, as a fountain, as a pool, as a spring, as a stream. And as a well, he couldn't have known. But it did happen. 400 years after David died, Isaiah wrote these words. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none. And when their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Here's what I'll do for my people if they get hungry for me. I will open rivers in high places and I'll open fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll even make their wilderness a pool of water and I'll make their dry land springs of water. I know this is an unusual message for the Sunday morning before Christmas, but let me tell you, if you're walking through a wilderness, if you're walking through a dry place, your key to unlock that door is worshiping God. There is something about a hunger for God. He said, I'll turn their dry places into fountains and pools and wells and springs. Isaiah spoke in 35. He said, then shall the lame man leap as an heart and the tongue of the dumb sing for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams will break out in the desert and even parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land will become springs of water. And you know this one. 
Isaiah also spoke and said, therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Now David, he didn't realize on that day. He was in the middle of a battle. He's fighting for his life and he's fighting for his hometown. He probably didn't realize he was speaking and acting prophetically. He was just thinking out loud. He was just speaking casually. He probably didn't even realize at that moment that there would come a point where wells would be important prophetically throughout the scripture. Now, he knew these events, but I doubt seriously he'd connected the dots. You Bible lovers and Bible readers, you already know this. You know that meeting the bride at a well is a theme that runs all through scripture. It's, it's amazing. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was found at a well. Isaac's son, Jacob, found his wife, Rachel, at a well. Moses found his wife, Zipporah, at a well. All through scripture, here's the picture. The bride is found at the well. Why? Because the well is the place where the thirsty come to drink. The well is the place where needs are fulfilled. It was Abraham's servant who found Isaac's wife at the well and that servant represents the spirit of God carrying out the will of God. The spirit always meets the bride at the well. That's why Revelation twenty two seventeen says the spirit and the bride say come. Let him that heareth say come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. It is in our place of need and thirst and emptiness and dryness that we become most open to God. Need and emptiness and dryness and pain and sorrow and sadness and grief and tears are not our enemy if they lead us to the well. If they lead you to the well, all of those bad things that happen in your life, they just became your good friend because it's at the well, the spiritual well, where the bride is met by the master. It's amazing. God, you know this. He called David a man after mine own heart. Why? Because David, not a perfect man, a man who made horrible mistakes and not just mistakes, a man who committed heinous sins. It was awful. But David had one thing going for him. He was a man who had an unquenchable thirst for God. No sooner would he sin no sooner would he mess up. No sooner would he do something that was so grievous to God's heart. David would turn it around and say, oh God, you got to forgive me. And the Lord said to David, he saw it all through his life. He saw it from the moments when as a young boy tending sheep, David would beat on that drum. And he would get a rhythm going and he would sing praise to God. We worship God as God's people in ancient times with rhythm before we ever worshiped him in melody. But eventually David put some melodies to them. The book of Psalms full of his writings and his songs, his tunes, his lyrics. And David would beat that drum or play that harp and he would worship God and God always remembered that. God always remembered that David as he wrote and as he sang there would be this longing that just came out of his heart. He couldn't help it. It would just rise out of his heart. He was a man among men. He was unique. He was, he was set apart, not by his stature like Saul, not by his education, not by his pedigree. He was set apart by one thing, by his hunger for God. 
May I tell you, people are still set apart in God's kingdom by their hunger for God. They still are. And God looked down on that little drummer boy, that little harp player, that little singer who from childhood had learned how to praise God and worship God. And he put him in as the king of Israel and he still never lost his hunger and his thirst for God. Still made mistakes, still took wrong turns, still was a disaster someday. But he never lost his thirst for God and it pleased God so much. And the Lord said, David, because of your thirst for me, because on that day of battle, when everything in your world is destroyed and you can see your boyhood home going up in flames and the town you grew up in ruined and wrecked by the enemy. And even on that day, you can't get it out of your spirit. Even on that day, the thing that is foremost in your mind is, I wish I could have just one more drink from the well of Bethlehem. And God looked down from heaven and said, David, because you've got such a thirst for me, I'm gonna do something for you. I'm going to use your house to open up a fountain of redemption for the entire world. I'm going to use your house, your lineage, your kingdom, your descendants to open up a fountain, a pool, a well, a spring of redemption. Zechariah 13 in that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but this fountain won't just quench your thirst. It will take care of sin and uncleanness. Micah 5.2, we read it every year. We've read it already this year. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be a little tiny town among the thousands of Judah, there's somebody that's coming forth out of that town that's going to be a ruler in Israel, his goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And we sit here in the year 2019 and we are one blessed people. Not only are we blessed to live in a free country, not only are we blessed to have material possessions, not only are we blessed with a roof over our head and food to eat and a car to drive and, and, and friends and We've got so much. But not only are we blessed like that, we, we do stop and we are grateful for that at this time of year. We need to be grateful for that all day, every day, all year long, every week, every month. But we have a greater blessing than all of that. We know the gospel. We've obeyed the gospel. We've been changed by the gospel. We've been saved by the gospel. And it is not our goodness that's going to take us to heaven. It is the gospel that's going to take us to heaven. And the gospel is the well of Bethlehem, spiritually speaking. And Jesus himself is the water in the well of the gospel. He said it, I didn't. John 4, 14. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him, he'll never thirst. He'll never thirst. It'll quench that spiritual thirst that's in your life. And the water that I give him will be in him. He'll get the gospel on the inside. It'll be a well of water that springs up into everlasting life. You remember this? Jesus looked at a crowd in John 7. He said, he that believeth on me as the scripture hath said, 
I'm going to move the well inside of him. He won't have to go to a, a far country. He won't have to go to a special religious site. He won't have to go to see a special religious person. No, I'm going to put the well inside of him. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Somebody say, I got the well. And the well is inside of me. And so I'm sorry, I apologize for not being very Christmassy today, but, but this is Christmas. Christmas is the well of Bethlehem. It became a gospel. It became a baby. It became a savior. It became a sacrifice. And now it's become the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I am thankful for the gospel, but I'm more than thankful for just a message of ancient history. I have the well of water that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've got that on the inside. And that's why nothing else really satisfies. You can look, you can search, you can earn, you can achieve. You can be a pretty good person. You can be a great neighbor. You can have accolades coming your way and trophies and awards and rewards. and You can be a success. But nothing satisfies. Like the water from the well of the gospel. Music, come on back. The well I'm talking about is a spiritual well. It was dug in Bethlehem, all right, but not that well that David looked at on the day of battle. It was dug in obscurity. It was dug in the nighttime. It was dug by the light of a single star. It was dug not in a palace. This well was dug in a stable. Humble shepherds came to see the opening of this well. And at the first gush of living water from this well, the very angels of God visited a nondescript hillside outside of Bethlehem and began to shout one to another, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Those angels... <laughs> We don't know much about angels. There's people that think they do, but they don't. They make it all up. You read it on the internet and believe it. Those angels that gave the good tidings to those shepherds, they wanted a drink of that water so bad. But God said, no, this water is reserved for my redeemed. I didn't dig this well for angels. I dug this well for people like David who mess up and make mistakes and fall flat on their face and have horrible days. But they have an unquenchable thirst for me. Peter would later write, which things the angels desire to look into. I think the angels are stumped by two things really do. Again, we don't know very much about angels. We know a few of their names. We know some of their attributes. And we know that we don't pray to angels. We pray to Jesus. Jesus commands angels. You don't. But I think the angels are puzzled by two things. I think they're genuinely puzzled 
at why God would take on a body of frail human flesh and come to earth to save the likes of us. I think that really puzzles them. Angels are strong. Angels are perfect. Angels don't make mistakes. That's why Lucifer never got a second chance to get back to heaven, to get back in God's good graces because that was not a mistake. Lucifer sinned before there was a tempter or a temptation. Angels choose what they do. And the holy angels in heaven are so perfect. I think it stumps them why God would choose to come and save someone, something as imperfect as all of us. But without being offensive this morning, I hope, I think there's something else that genuinely puzzles the angels. Because the writer of Hebrews says that the angels are sent forth to be ministering spirit to those of us that are the heirs of salvation, to those of us that have the water in us. And God dispatches angels to answer prayer and to guard and protect. And He dispatches angels to pour out blessings. He there's not a doubt in my mind you may think this is spooky but there's not a doubt in my mind that there are angels around this building anytime we work together, meet together have any kind of planning have any kind of service there are angels that attend us not because the building's special but because we're special we're the people of God I think it puzzles the angels first of all why God would save people like us and give us the living water I wasn't planning on saying this this morning. The sound team could verify this isn't in my notes. But I think the second thing that puzzles the angels is our limited, calm, sedate response to such a gospel. I'm Canadian like most of you. We blame our culture for so much. Oh, we're Canadians. That's the way we are. If that's the way we are, we need to get over that really fast. Because God deserves such a debt of gratitude from us. I think it would genuinely, genuinely puzzle angels how people could receive the living water of God and then settle into a sedate kind of religious observance when the angels were the ones who split open the skies and stormed a hillside outside of Bethlehem. And we do it every year. Hark the herald angels sing. They didn't sing. They said one to another. They shouted the praises of God. Glory to God in the highest. There's something so powerful about this gospel. There's something so powerful about Christmas. We'll go to the stores and the malls and we'll see the little nativity scenes and we'll see the cute little plastic baby and the cute little plastic manger and we'll think, isn't that quaint? But it's not quaint. It's like a little kid playing with dynamite. It is the most powerful message in the world that the God of heaven came to earth to save people like us. That is Christmas. And that deserves your highest, greatest, grandest, most heartfelt, most sincere, most authentic, and yes, most 
boisterous praise that you could ever muster. Christmas isn't about a silent night. Christmas is about a night when the angels came from heaven and shouted the praises of God. Christmas is about God splitting open eternity and coming to walk among us. Christmas points to Calvary and Calvary points to the resurrection and the resurrection points to Pentecost and Pentecost points right at us and says, do you not owe God a debt of gratitude that he came, that he loved, that he forgave, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he sent his spirit into the church. I'm looking for somebody who has an unquenchable, undeniable, can't be silenced, can't be sat down, hunger and thirst for the presence of God, that on this last Christmas Sunday morning, before we celebrate Christmas, that you'd stand to your feet and lift up your voice and not just give some kind of little rote response of the Pentecostal tradition, but you'd actually thank God with your whole heart for what he did for you. There are so many people for whom Christmas is a religious tradition at best. It is a sentimental observance at best. This morning, I'm inviting this church to step out in the aisle and walk to the altar. You're going to get your Christmas gifts this morning. For the next few moments, we're going to give Jesus his Christmas gift got a beautiful concert tonight. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to worship God, but I know you folks. We're pretty sedate and calm at concerts. So let's take this morning and let's lift up a great praise to him. This is not a time when I'm asking you to come pray for yourself or come pray for somebody else. I'm just asking you to give Jesus his Christmas gift before you get yours. I'm just asking you to genuinely walk to an altar and lift up your hands and do something that is so counter-cultural that is so anti-religious 
that is so anti-sedate. It's, it's just this kind of joyful thirst for God. It's this boisterous act of worship that says, I don't care that I'm a little odd in culture. I'm filled with the well of the gospel. I've got living water inside of me. I'm not asking you to do it like anybody else. I'm asking you to do it like you do it. I'm asking you to give Jesus at least as much excitement as you'll have when you open whatever present it is you're hoping for. I'm asking that you would give Jesus an absolute act of honor and worship and praise and glory this morning. unsaved can't do it. The one that curses God can't do it. Secular culture can't do it. All of the performers and the artists, they can't do it. But I'll tell you who can do it is the people that are filled with the living water that the Savior came to bring. You can give him a praise unlike anybody else in the world. You can give him a praise unlike any other group of people on this planet. He's longing to hear from you. He invested a lot in you. And the word of God promises that for the worshiper, the word of God promises that for the thirsty, the word of God promises that for the hungry, he will take your dry and barren desert. He will take your wilderness and your hard stony places and he will make them into a well of water and a refreshing pool of living water. I'd like everybody to close your eyes and I'd like you to just begin to pray right now. But if that's you, and even at Christmas time, you or your family, a loved one, somebody is walking through a hard place, a, a dry place, a lonely place. I'd like you to lift up both of your hands right now. I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than that. I'm not going to ask anybody to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you and God's going to move on you right now. And there's a lot of hands raised. It's just that kind of time of year that brings that to the forefront of our mind. I'm going to ask this great church to pray because God wants to give you a special Christmas gift. He'd like to turn that dryness. He'd like to turn that barrenness. He'd like to turn that hurt and that loneliness. He'd like to turn that desert into something refreshing and beautiful. He'd like to turn that loss that you're still grieving. He'd like to turn that into a blessing for you right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your people and I thank you, God, for the privilege of preaching to them this morning. And I thank you for your word. 
And I thank you most of all for the gospel. What a privilege it is to know and to love and to have obeyed and to be able to preach and share the gospel. And God, this morning, you said that for the hungry, you take their dryness and their barrenness and turn it around. Isaiah spoke that. You gave those words to that prophet. And so God, right now, I pray that you would turn it around for a thirsty person here. Nothing else is satisfied. Nothing else has soothed the raw edges of their emotions. Nothing else has brought a smile to their face. Nothing else has brought joy to their heart. Nothing else has brought peace in their mind. But your gospel can. Your living water can. There's nothing that solves and soothes and quenches thirst like your gospel. In the name of Jesus and on the authority of the word of God that was preached this morning, let living water flow into lives right now. Let living water flow into someone's mind, into someone's emotion, into someone's heart, into someone's home, into someone's marriage, into someone's family right now. Let living water flow this morning. Let living water flow this morning. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. If you would just forget about the clock, we're fine. We've only got one service. We've got a concert tonight. If you would just forget about the clock for a couple of minutes, God could really do something for you this morning. He's here. There is a river that flows from deep. 